Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And from WBEZ in Chicago, this is Nerdette. Today's show will sound a little different than usual. As most of you should know, March 14th is a big holiday for the nerds out there. It's Pi Day. It's also Einstein's birthday. But more importantly, <laughs> it's Pi Day 3.14. And this year, 1.5. So we got two extra digits of the number Pi in our date this year, which was worth celebrating with lots and lots of pizza pie, dessert pie, at Adler Planetarium. It was a beautiful nerd celebration of Pi Day running all over Adler. You'll hear our conversations with astronomers and scientists. So much space fun! We also will get to know Great Lady Nerd of History, Dorit Hofflet. That and a whole lot of Pi Day nerd <laughs> confessions on Nerdette. Because everybody's a little nerdy about something. And it turns out a lot of people are nerdy about space. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. Make it snappy, nerd! Nerds! I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And you're listening to Nerdette. Dr. Shane Larson and Laura Truey have amazing jobs where they're astronomers at Adler Planetarium for part of the time, and they teach physics and astronomy at Northwestern University the rest of the time. When we talked to them at Adler Planetarium on Pi Day, we started by asking how they hit the nerd jackpot and managed to make the thing they love most into their day jobs. Here's Shane Larson. I have a very long and winding path. Um, when I was first trying to go to college, uh, I had decided I wanted to be an astronaut, okay? Which, how many people wanted to be an astronaut when they grew up? Okay, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I wanted to be an astronaut. And at the time, the way to be an astronaut was to fly on the space shuttle. And if you want to fly on the space shuttle, you could either be a pilot, and I was far too short to be a pilot, and I'm still too short to be a pilot. And the other way was to build an experiment that would do some science thing. And then when they come to you and they say, okay, you've built this experiment, it's going to fly in the space shuttle, what does the person who needs to work the experiment be like? And you say they need to be this tall and they need to be this wide and have brown hair and brown eyes. And they're like, great, you sound like the guy to go and you go. And I know many astronauts who went to space this way. So I had decided to be a mechanical engineer when I was not a very good mechanical engineer because I didn't follow the rules very well. And I took classes that were of interest to me and I took astronomy, which was taught by the physics department. And three days into that uh, class, I was like, oh, this is what I should be doing. And so I switched my major and here I am. <laughs> Laura, how'd you get here? My family's French, and I spent summers at my grandmother's farm in France, and being on a farm with uh, very little adult supervision, <laughs> you just naturally, by inclination, start doing science experiments as a kid. And so one of the things we had easy access to was um, firecrackers. And if you've ever <laughs> been on a farm and there's all those little cow pies around and you happen to have access to firecrackers, well, <laughs> what do you think you might want to try? Um, and so, so we tried all sorts of different, just we were having fun. And doing little science experiments was just sort of a natural part of my childhood. And then I was lucky to have amazing eighth grade science teacher, high school physics teacher, really good 
mentors through college. And in college in particular was when I got more and more interested in astronomy. And that first time I looked through a telescope, a, a big telescope in Arizona, and used it to collect data. And I was one of the first to look at a particular star cluster in a particular filter set and, and use it to determine sort of a lower limit to the age of the universe. That just, that hooked me. I mean, that ability to discover something myself uh, was a really big moment in thinking that I could actually have this career. What point in your studies was that, that moment? So uh, my freshman year as an undergrad, I got involved in a women in science program and partnered with a college professor. And that, um, I think that summer was when we did the first observing trip. We've talked with a couple other groups from Adler here tonight. One was about citizen science, one was about education. And there was a theme running through both of those conversations that was folks who now in their adult day jobs have landed back here and in this world in some way, but they all had this period where they fell away from science. And for most of them, it was middle Mm -hmm. school all the way through high school. For a lot of them, even through college. And one said that doing a sixth grade report about wanting to be an astronomer and finding out how many years of school it took made her go, never mind. Uh, <laughs> so I, I wonder for, you, for both of you, there may have been people who supported you, but there was also pressure to say, this is a lot of school for an uncertain future in terms of a profession. Do you think that having those experiences early on of freshman year of undergrad kept you hooked? And how do we get more people to have those experiences earlier in their education? Uh, so yes, definitely. There's even research showing that if, if you get kids doing a research project in high school, that really helps in terms of persistence through the college years and into grad school. For me, a big moment was realizing that you get paid as a regular job in grad school. And so it was definitely four years of college, but then it was like my first job was being a grad student. Um, so it, it was a little bit of a different way to think about it, which I always try to pass on to the students I mentor. I don't think I ever went through a phase where it was a question that this is what would happen. My dad and my mom are both scientists, so I think I was probably exposed to the idea of an early age bit that being a scientist for your whole career is okay. And while the job market is always uncertain, and and I just never really thought about it, I just did it. And I think I'm fortunate that it all worked out in the end, and I'm not, you know, doing some other career like, you know, being an orthopedic surgeon or something. But, you know, I I just never really kind of looked sideways at it and and worried about it. But my family never gave me pressures that I had to worry about it. And certainly there are other families where that does happen, right? Laura, you're still involved with, like, women in science organizations, right? Tell Mm -hmm. us a little about that. So in undergrad, uh, it was really because of that women in science group that I was able to keep going. And so then in grad school, I was lucky to be at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and we had an amazing group of women in our grad school cohort. And, um, and so we created a women in physics and astronomy group, but it was really just us hanging out with a bunch of friends. And, <laughs> um, and, uh, and they were just a wonderful support system, um, which was key for making it through grad school, which has lots of ups and definitely it's, it's tough. Uh, when I became a postdoc at Northwestern, um, the American Astronomical Society has a committee on the status of women in astronomy. And I think because of my prior experience and interactions, um, I was asked to serve on that committee. And so we help um, just 
provide guidance and policy recommendations for the community, but also to the National Science Foundation, to our government, in terms of what what supports can be put into place so that women um, feel access and feel supported through STEM career routes. Um, so, you know, important issues like uh, family leave policies and uh, stop the clock and uh, being recognized for, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so... So through the Committee on the Status of Women in Astronomy, I got involved, and then very much through the Adler and all the different programming we do for women, um, girls, elementary school, middle school, high school level, um, and supporting their interest in science and access to these science careers. Shane, your origin story includes a woman who was a groundbreaking (laughs) scientist. My mom was, uh, (laughs) she's the first woman in the United States to get a degree in forestry, actually. Forestry. Forestry, yeah. So this was in the mid-60s. Uh, she went to Stephen F. Austin in Texas, and uh, and there was no group for her to hang out with. One woman like with Clorhead. all the guys in forestry, <laughs> and so I, I was telling you before the podcast, my my mom has these stories that I find very um, awesome to listen to because it tells you a lot about my mom's personality. But, you know, they would go out to the field and they go tromping through the woods and you got to wear your boots and look out for rattlesnakes and they come back to campus and all the guys would go to class. And the dean wanted my mom to go back to the dorm and change into a dress and then come to class and be a girl. And she's like, no, <laughs> not going to happen. Went to, went to class with all the boys and I don't think the dean was too happy with her, but what could he do, right? So, um, so it was awesome. So I, I've always had that kind of role model in my life. Uh, you just do what you do and don't pay attention to the people who make stupid rules on top of you. <laughs> um, and then when I was an undergraduate, actually all of my advisors were women as well. So my undergraduate research advisor um, was a, a very good uh, biophysicist. She taught me a bunch about biophysics and lasers and genetics. I worked in her lab. That firmly convinced me I didn't want to be a lab person. <laughs> but it's it, not because of Jean, but because of the work. Um, and then my, my academic advisor was also a woman who's actually who got me into gravity. She's a mathematical physicist from the University of Texas, and uh, she, worked on, she worked on black holes. Yeah, she's the one who started this. This is her fault. So, yeah. so Shane, when we were doing research about you before this event, uh-huh. I also came across something that I thought was really interesting called the Erdős number. Oh. Uh-huh. And, and now this is essentially like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, yeah. but for... But like, for super science nerds, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Who, who is this? Like, tell us. So, what's so Paul Erdős is a very famous mathematician. Um, if, if you like reading biographies about scientists, there's a fantastic biography about him called "The Man Who Loved Only Numbers." And so, the kind of story of Paul Erdős is he was very itinerant. Um, he didn't like to kind of hold a steady job or have a house, and he would travel around the world to visit colleagues and basically couch surf, work with them, and write papers, and then go to his next college and you know couch surf and work and write papers with them. Just and like so, Kevin Bacon. Just like Kevin Bacon. That's what you do. You crash at Kevin Bacon's joint and write. No. So, uh, but, uh, so Erdős, he was a phenomenal mathematician. There's all kinds of really interesting pure math results that are due to him. And so it's a kind of mark of distinction if you've ever written a paper with Paul Erdős. And so they're in the literature. We do this in science, and it happens with other scientists as well. In physics, there's a similar number called the Bohr number, which is a pun based on atomic physics because Niels Bohr developed the atomic theory, right? <laughs> B-O-H-R. So, that's right, yeah. yeah. So it's all that stuff. But but the 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 Erdős number is your separation in academic papers from Paul. 
So <laughs> if you wrote a paper with Paul Erdős, your Erdős number is one. And if you wrote a paper with someone who wrote a paper with Paul Erdős, your number mm -hmm. is two, and on down the line. And so, so if you spend time sifting through the literature, you can figure out how many separations you are to Paul Erdős. I think mine currently is five. But I know someone whose Erdős number is two, so I really need to write a paper with him <laughs> oh, so I can get go. to three. <laughs> and so yours is five right now, but it used to be higher, right? it, Yeah, so, so this is the thing, is if you can find a better linkage, your number can go down. So usually what we say is my, minimum, my maximum Erdős number is. So it, it used to be six. And it, the six I like because it goes through Einstein, but, um, but the five is nice because it's shorter. <laughs> So you mentioned Einstein. We should say happy birthday. Yeah. Happy Albert. birthday. It's Einstein's birthday. It's yes. Einstein's birthday. Yes. And you told a whole crowd of people a whole lot about Einstein earlier today. Can you give us just a little Reader's Digest version for the folks who weren't able to see that talk yeah. earlier today so, about why we're celebrating? Pi Day is an awesome day to talk about Einstein because everyone's here to do Pi Day stuff, but it was his birthday. And so the, the talk I like to give on Pi Day about Einstein is about the science he did, much of it which was captured um, during his early life, during the first 15 years of the 20th century. And what I told people today is that's kind of awesome because if you think about the fact that Einstein was the person of the century from Time Magazine, mm. all the work he did was during the first 15 years. So whoever's going to be the person of the century in the 21st century is working right now wow. <laughs> within the first 15 years, right? So all, a whole bunch of work he did in his early life was done, it's very fundamental knowledge, it's kind of you know crazy science stuff that you learn in school and it's not obvious why it's important. But now, 100 years later, every single bit of it has been transformed into things that influence and affect our everyday lives. And so we, we spent 20 minutes this morning talking about this is, you know, this is Brownian motion and this is the photoelectric effect and this is special relativity and here's how all of those things are in your everyday life and you didn't even know it. And so that's what we talked about, yeah. And speaking of things in your everyday life, roller derby. <laughs> Natural segue. Right? No, I think this works, though, because there is something to say for gravity. You know, a lot of the things that you guys Physics, are working with momentum, in your... Momentum, yeah, you know, Key to all. Right? And I think that's why we're so successful in our roller derby careers. There's a few <laughs> astronomers, like myself, who have participated in roller derby. I happen to do it in Madison with the Mad Roland Dolls, but um, I am sure our knowledge of physics helps us wiggle our way <laughs> through the Don't you think opponents. so, though? I mean, you oh. must. It must help. I think also that I was about half the size of a lot of the Wisconsin <laughs> Giants <laughs> I was skating against. So help. let's hear your derby name, because it's good. Uh, the Big Bang. Nice. I think you could have guessed it if I had let you guess. Um, I mean, what else could you be called as an astronomer on wheels? <laughs> the Big Bang is good. The Big Bang is very good. Thanks to astronomers and professors Shane Larson and Laura Truey for talking to us at Adler Planetarium on Pi Day. Still to come, a cornucopia of nerd confessions collected live at Adler Planetarium on Pi Day. This is Nerdette. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And you're listening to Nerdette. We talked to two other folks from Adler Planetarium while we were there. 
One is Lauren Kelly. She's an educator for STEM student experiences at the Planetarium, and her origin story, turns out, has a lot to do with books, particularly the series Animorphs. If you do not know what Animorphs is, (laughs) it is a book series meant for young readers that the kids can turn in to animals and they fight aliens. I mean, You cannot beat that. That's awesome. They were so good. They were so good. So good. But just books <coughs> books in general. Books, books, books. I'm wearing a shirt right now. I know this is podcast land, so you all here in the audience can see. Our listeners might not. I'm wearing Isaac Asimov iRobot shirt. I've worked at a bookstore for a number of years. Just books, books, books. All of them. You actually just told me something that I feel like we need to discuss for a minute because this is beautiful. <laughs> so Lauren and her partner live in a three-bedroom oh, yeah. apartment. Yeah, and tell me how you've distinguished, you know, you've got your bedroom and then what are you doing with the yeah, other two? Yeah, we have two other rooms. One is a guest bedroom, one is an office, but we don't call them that. We call them the fiction room and the non-fiction room. <laughs> the non-fiction is room is the office, so good. obviously. I mean, if I'm obviously. working in my office, I need to be able to reference my non-fiction books. So I have two shelves of non-fiction <laughs> and the guest room is fiction so the, the house guest can you know peruse their vacation yeah, they read. can be inspired <laughs> they, yeah. we also talked with steve berkland he's another person who works at the planetarium he also has this kind of fun side project called the hungry physicist it's not really the science of food, it's, it's science and food. You know, when you're, when you're young, your teacher might, if they're teaching you math, they might teach it in a way of like basketball if you're a sports person and, and teach you about math and basketball, you know. In this case, my thought was, hey, people like to eat, some people really, really love food, and these people I can educate in physics. What I do is I go to restaurants and I review the restaurant from the perspective of a physics student. Does the restaurant have enough table size for a studying? Are there napkins to write on? You, you honestly don't understand. Physicists write, because we never have enough paper with us at that time, so we grab napkins and write on them, but then you have those restaurants with the cloth napkins, and it's useless, completely useless. No, no physics gets done in those restaurants. None. None. So uh, that, whether or not it's conducive to group study, so those sorts of things, and then if the food's good, obviously, and if the service is good, I cover all of that. And then while I'm there, I think about the restaurant and what sort of physics-y element I can pull out of that particular restaurant and write about it. But the trick is keeping it short and sweet. You know, you don't want to overload everything science onto a person. So, for example, I reviewed a um, coffee shop called Absento near where I live, mm-hmm. and a wonderful, wonderful coffee shop. And so the article was about coffee, but then the last paragraph was about the Stefan Boltzmann law, which none of you know, but is essentially that hot <laughs> objects give off heat faster than cold objects. So the question becomes, when do you put cream in your coffee to maximize its temperature over time? You know, do you do it first or do you do it second? And so there's a nice little graph on there that indicates when it should happen. And you learn the Stefan Boltzmann law. When do I put cream in my coffee? First. First, okay. First, yeah, first. yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. That's it. It'll maximize temperature over time. Awesome. So <laughs> then the other, the other segment of the, of the website is uh, recipes, right? Because uh, you can't really have a food website without also talking about recipes. So I include those. And mostly they're adjustments from other things that I found, like a lot of Alton Brown recipes that are just slightly modified, you know, for something, uh, or emerald recipes, or any other place. But my particular trick is, of course, educating people. So I write them as a lab report, a physics <laughs> lab report. <laughs> so, so there good, is, you guys. yeah, there's a hypothesis, there's a purpose, material list, uh, conclusion, data analysis, that sort of thing. Each section, and they're all written in significant figures. They're all, <laughs> they're all in decimal form. <laughs> Thank you. 
that Steve Berkland, his website is The Hungry Physicist, but he says he'll draw the line at doing the recipes in metric. I have to say, Trisha, it is really important to do recipes in metric. I recently learned that you can only get good flour liquid ratios if you work in grams because everybody's cups are different. This is why we have a kitchen scale. (laughs) I'm serious. Metric, we're all going. We're all going to convert. It's going to happen. You're listening to Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita. And I'm Greta Johnson. It's time now for Great Lady Nerds of History. Talking to people at Adler Planetarium, there was one unifying moment that wove through most people's stories. A memory of the first time they looked, really looked, at the stars. At about age eight, I enrolled in a park district stargazing class. I had trouble staying awake past like 11 um, to actually look up and see the stars. I honestly can't think of anything during my sort of education that really made me think, wow, science is amazing. Uh, For me, it was always time spent with my dad. He used to take me out into the garden and we'd look at the constellations. Um, My mum used to take me to the library and I'd get books about the planets out. I remember the librarian telling me I was checking out too many books. Five-year-old, six-year-old Lauren just trying to carry all the books. I was told to put some back. And I had to. I had to put some back. Um, But I really loved learning about the planets, learning about stars. I bet a lot of them, and a lot of you amateur astronomers out there, have a book by Dort Hofflet on your shelf. That book is the Bright Star Catalog. It contains maps to more than 9,000 stars, and the woman who helped write it is this week's Great Lady Nerd of History. Hofflet was born in March of 1907. She earned a degree in mathematics and then a doctorate in astronomy. She was only 23 years old when she started working at the Harvard College Observatory. Hofflet always took a special interest in helping young women who were pursuing astronomy. She trained college undergraduates in the summer at the Maria Mitchell Observatory in Massachusetts. Hofflet officially retired in 1975 at age 68, but she continued to work daily from her office at Yale until well into her 90s. She lived to be 100 years old. Her autobiography is Misfortunes as Blessings in Disguise, which is a pretty good title. That's where I found a quote about her, from a speech that was given when she got an honorary doctorate in 1998. This is what Professor Christine Larson had to say about Hofflet. It is a basic tenet of stellar astronomy that those stars which burn hottest and brightest and draw the most attention to themselves also burn out the quickest rapidly becoming nothing more than fading memories. Meanwhile, those unassuming stars, which steadily shine in the background, content to diligently produce energy at a more modest pace, continue to influence the universe with their light and heat for many generations to come. Hofflet's decades of work in astronomy and the Bright Star Catalog means she still offers plenty of light to stargazers today. So if your Bright Star Catalog is collecting dust in some corner on a bookshelf, Go get it right now. Flip it open, or Google it and you'll find a copy online. Then head outside tonight and look at the stars. You can learn more about Dorit Hofflet on our website, nerdatpodcast.com. Now it's time for homework. 
Your first assignment comes from Kelly Borden. She's an archaeologist by training and citizen science education lead at Adler Planetarium. The idea behind citizen science at Adler is that computers these days are really good at accumulating massive amounts of data. But they're still not very good at actually interpreting that data. And that is where non-doctoral citizens like you and I come in. And that's why Kelly wants you to visit Zooniverse.org. And choose a project that sounds interesting. Find a planet at Planet Hunters or look at some animal butts at um, Snapshot (laughs) Serengeti. I'm really into this whole Snapshot Serengeti situation. Animal butts. Animal butts, exactly. (laughs) And there's a related homework assignment from Dr. Laura White. She is director of citizen science at the Adler Planetarium. I want you to tell a friend about Zooniverse.org. I want you to spread the word. Uh, We need more people to get involved. Um, And when you get home, I'd really like it if at some point you could do Chicago Wildlife Watch. It's one of my particular favorite projects because it's got urban wildlife from Chicago. So go and check out some of the crazy creatures that live in Chicago, that are in your gardens and in your local parks. Um, And, you know, classify a few of them online and then go and see if you can find some outside. But don't touch them because they don't like them. (laughs) (laughs) Check out Zooniverse.org. We'll have a link to that and all your homework at nerdatpodcast.com. Now it's time to hear from you. Time for Nerd Confessions in space. (laughs) Oh, good one. Good one. For the first half of the day when we were at Adler, Trisha and I were camped out in the medieval classroom at the planetarium. It was the perfect scene for Nerd Confessions. The space had a spiritual vibe with student views (laughs) and a throne-like chair in the front of the room. So we had people sit in the throne to tell us their Nerd Confessions all day long. Dad can't decide what his nerdiest moment is, so kids are going to let us know. When was your dad the nerdiest? This is hard. Was it building the Lego AT-AT? I've seen you nerdier than that. I can't remember when. I just know I have. Was it launching the air pressured bottle rockets? Uh, no. I think it was actually the Mentos. Yeah. Mentos, yeah. Definitely the Mentos experiment. Tell me about the Mentos experiment. Well, we turned off all the lights and crashed the Mentos and lights flashed. It was all Dad's idea. This sounds pretty cool. So this was a science experiment you did at home? Yeah, so they were spearmint lifesavers, not Mentos. Because Mentos go in Diet Coke. Yeah. Spearmint lifesavers spark in the dark. I'm a university professor and I love languages. And when my students ask me, what do you really like most in life? Is it music like Beethoven? Is it uh, soccer? Is it, uh, you know, Italian food? I tell them, no. The thing that I like to work on most is irregular verbs in Semitic languages. And so I kind of consider myself the Sherlock Holmes of irregular verbs. My students think I'm eccentric, but I think I'm curious and inquisitive. When I was in fifth grade, I dressed up as Harpo Marx for Halloween, uh, thanks to the influence of my three older brothers. And uh, I was so committed to the role that I, when, when I was trick-or-retreating, I did not speak at all during the entire night. All I did was honk my horn. I did this and spent the whole day not speaking and only honking a horn at people. And no one your age knows who you are or what you're dressed up as. That's what's great about it. It's like completely confusing to them. But all the parents thought it was awesome and I got extra candy. Yes! So good! 
I love to bring my students treats in the form of chocolate-covered crickets as both a way to talk about alternative forms of food and eat tasty snacks. How do they react? There's generally two camps. Two that are very excited to just do something absolutely disgusting and two that refuse to touch them. But then they find out that they just kind of taste like chocolate-covered peanuts, so it's okay. I was eight years old. I was reading A Wrinkle in Time. I got on the school bus one morning, and I did not realize until we had driven partway down the road that I had dropped it before I had gotten on the bus. I made an entire school bus of 30 kids stop, wait for me to run down the road and run back, so that I could get my book because I was not leaving my book behind. And I still have that book and it still sits in my bookshelf and my little girl is gonna have the chance to read it. In fifth grade, I did an entire research paper on the Doppler effect because in Doctor Who, the bow ties were red and blue for past and future and I thought that was super cool. So you're relating Doctor Who to weather, basically. So those are our two favorite things. It's Pi Day. I didn't have that in mind, and yet I still said, on Saturday we need to go to the Adler Planetarium. And we were one of the first families here. So I'm subconsciously even a nerd. <laughs> That's really good. You just knew in your I heart. I just knew in my heart we needed to go to the planetarium with the kids on March 14th, 2015. That guy spent the day at the planetarium, and he didn't even come for the free pie. I totally came for the pie, let's be honest. <laughs> Call 312-600-5638 to tell us about when you were at your nerdiest, everything from epic fails to humble brags. Welcome. Call us and leave your nerd confession at 312-600-5638. Or suggest a great lady nerd of history for us to profile, or just say hi. We love your voicemails. Nerdette is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson. With help from Joe Dassault, Colleen Pellissier, and Brad Helm. Special thanks to all the folks at Adler Planetarium for talking to us, especially Elizabeth Gordon and the whole Adler behind-the-scenes crew. Thank you for listening on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. You can find us at nerdatpodcast.com. That's where you sign up for our email newsletter. Talk with us on Twitter at nerdatpodcast and like us on Facebook. Find us on Instagram at nerdatpodcast for mini book reviews. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect nerds like you. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Throw some stars and write a review on iTunes if you're feeling generous. Like the excellent Toof did on iTunes. Toof. Toof. <laughs> I got nothing. I got nothing. In any case, we appreciate the stars. The Ghost retweets. dogs? <laughs> Ghost dogs. Two of them. Toof. Ghost dogs. <laughs> That's the nerdiest thing I've ever heard. Casper the friendly ghost dog. No, no, no. We appreciate the stars, the retweets, and the shares. There's one other way you can help Nerdette. If you're a nerd with a business or you work for one and you want to get your message heard by Nerdette listeners, you can underwrite the show. Email nerdettepodcast at gmail.com to learn more about sponsorship opportunities. Our theme music is New Old Toys by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. 
Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.